This is Justin. He's an army buddy of mine. Um, we're recording the service this morning, and so I, I knew I wanted somebody to help me with the service who I would feel comfortable with, and so thank you, Justin, for being here to, today. Um, God and I talk, <laughs> and I realize that I'm probably one of the few people who can say that in, you know, quote-unquote, civilized society without raising too many eyebrows. Um, and I've been blessed enough, fortunate enough by God to receive special direction from him in my life. And I'm not sure if that says more about my piety as a Christian or my pathetically bad sense of direction. But he gives me special direction. So years ago when God called me to attend Bible college, because of my background, my first response was simply to ask God, why do you want me to go to Bible college? Won't your Holy Spirit reveal to me everything that I need to know about the scriptures and about ministry? Of course, God never really gave me a clear, articulate answer. Never gave me a direct response. And so I was simply left with that imperative, that command, to go to Bible college. So I went to Bible college. I was afraid at the time that I would be seen as a sellout, as not having enough faith in God to receive insight and knowledge of the scriptures directly from the Holy Spirit. Because that, that, that's what I was taught was the mark of a real minister, a real pastor. You didn't need study because you had the Holy Spirit who would reveal things to you to, to give you insight. I had heard horror stories, in fact, about people who had gone to seminary or had gone to Bible college and had either left the ministry or left Christianity altogether because of that time. Heard that their faith had dried up, that their positive attitudes had turned to cynicism and pessimism. I'd even met some of these people, and so I knew that the stories weren't just stories that they were true, that they really happened. And of course, I didn't want to risk having that happen to me. I wanted to do things that bolstered my faith and, and made me stronger in my faith, not things that would intentionally test it. Now on this side of things, on this side of that, that second na- naivety, as they call it, I, I understand that my obedience wasn't just blind obedience. It wasn't just blind following of God's will or God's command. But rather, my obedience was a natural result of a relationship in which I trusted God. I wasn't afraid to go to Bible college because I, I trusted God. But if God was telling me to go, well, he had never led me astray before. I didn't anticipate that he would do so now. I wasn't at peace at all about going to Bible college. I really wasn't. 
It felt like the worst thing that I could possibly do. To me, it, it felt like it, it's just wrong. Mostly because of the way that I was raised, I think. But I did have a steadfast peace about why I should do what God called me to do. I trusted God. And I trusted that he knew what he was He knew what he was doing. I think that's where we start with our passage this morning in Philippians. This is a tough passage because it leaves us with no excuse to do any other than rejoice in the Lord always. Always? Always? Let's think about that. If I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord always, does that mean even when I'm facing the prospect of Bible college, where passionate Christians go to see their faith die, or so I was taught at the time? Even when I'm going through a pregnancy loss, and this beautiful child that we've been anticipating with such excitement suddenly no longer has a heartbeat. Even then I'm supposed to rejoice? Even when I'm in the middle of the Iraqi desert, and my brothers and sisters in arms are dying and mortar rounds are falling all around me, even then I'm supposed to rejoice, really? Even when I've been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, there's no prospect of being able to see my family before I die, even then I'm supposed to rejoice? Like, I had an experience with one of my African brothers in Christ. Even in the midst of a famine that is sure to see my family starve before my very eyes, even then I'm supposed to rejoice? Why should I rejoice in the midst of such horrific tragedies and and suffering? That question, dear ones, is really what this passage is all about. Why should we rejoice? This passage is found in the extended conclusion to the book of Philippians. Paul has already talked about the hardships. He's talked about the sacrifices, the persecutions, and the tragedies, the suffering that he himself and other Christians have gone through in the past or are even now facing. And even as he writes this letter, Paul is in prison. And he anticipates that he will likely die be executed for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing this letter and he expresses to us that we are not alone in our sufferings. Paul, if nobody else, can at least empathize. But whatever those sufferings may be and however terrible they might be, Paul can still affirm 
that we are to rejoice despite it all. Paul starts off by saying, I'll tell you to rejoice. Yes. Even despite all the reasons not to rejoice, I'll say it again, rejoice. If you have your Bibles out, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Look at verse 5 with me for a minute. Paul gives us an unexpected consequence of our rejoicing. And it's a logical, matter-of-fact statement. We're rejoicing. Rejoice. That's what you do as a Christian is rejoice. Consequently, he says that in doing so, we will reveal our gentle spirit. In some translations, it's also called gentleness, reasonableness in the uh, ESV or or graciousness in the Holman Christian Bible. But what it really means is something more significant. We don't really have a complete translation because there's no real word in the English language to translate what the Greek actually says here. Our gentle spirit to which Paul is referring in this verse is something much more profound and much more particular than we might be led to imagine. And now I begin to realize why it is that God sent me to Bible college and then to seminary. It starts to make a little more sense. This gentleness is wrapped in mercy and topped with a bow of an ethic of love. It suggests the sort of character that a just judge shows when he or she, knowing the parameters of the corrective action for a given violation, sentences a perpetrator to 500 hours of community service and a year of probation rather than 18 months in prison. It's the sort of character a loving father shows when his son cuts himself with the knife that he knew he wasn't supposed to touch. And his father, instead of punishing him, simply goes over and gets out the first aid kit and starts bandaging the cut, knowing that the son has already learned his lesson and another word doesn't even need to be said. It's the sort of character that Christian shows when he or she refuses to defend him or herself in the face of false accusations, knowing that God knows He can see through all the lies and he knows what the truth really is and he will dispense justice. He will champion the cause of the elect. We know that Christ has overcome this world and our Christian character is revealed in all of these circumstances through this gentle spirit that we have, this spirit of mercy and compassion, of innocence and truth, that doesn't give people what they deserve and gives people what they don't deserve. It's a reality that we live with, and it's our present hope 
in this world. The heart of this gentle spirit is seen a little earlier in Philippians 2. Chapter 2, just a couple of pages back in your Bible. You'll see there the Holy Spirit instructs us through the words of Paul to do nothing out of selfishness or vanity, but rather to do everything that we do out of our primary concern for the best interests of others without regard for personal consequences. A true and unadulterated bona fide altruism, just like that which Jesus showed and demonstrated in the ultimate expression of altruistic concern for others, for us, for you and me, in going to the cross to die. Paul quickly follows his instruction to rejoice and thereby demonstrate our gentleness with others with an explanation of the reason why we should do so. He says, the Lord is near. Because the Lord is near, you rejoice. Because the Lord is near, you show your gentleness, your mercy and compassion to the whole world. And this is a stronger statement than we tend to imagine. We often gloss over statements like this without really taking the time to draw out the implications. This does not mean that we should treat others as more important than ourselves because God's watching and he'll get us if we don't. I've heard that said by some folks before. And nothing even remotely similar is is even imagined here. The Holy Spirit means for us to understand that we now have the presence of God with us. He's not off in some big cloud. He's not off in the sky. He is present with us. And for those of you that are in Jesus Christ, he is indwelling you. Filling you up. He is here, helping us, living in us, teaching us and empowering us to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. We can live out these radical commands that seem so extraordinary to us, to rejoice in the face of adversity, in the face of tragic suffering, because God is with us. If you look at verse 6, this incredible state in which we live, the presence and power of the living God available to us, and more than that, indwelling us, living within us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, makes our worries and our fears literally illogical. They're illogical. If God is present in our very lives, active and moving, of what can we logically be afraid? Does anything greater or more powerful than God exist? More powerful than the God who created the universe? Does anything have power over God to command him to do that which God would rather not do? Well, of course not. Of course not. But then why do we live our lives as if things do in fact exist that are more powerful or greater than God? Why are we afraid? Paul goes on to say, if you have a need, just let God know. That's all you got to do. Just let him know. He knows everything that we need even before we ask it. 
And give God thanks, he says, for giving you what you need day by day because he's already ultimately giving you what you really need, and that's salvation in Jesus Christ. God's own love and care for you. And the very presence of God found in the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The last verse in this short passage is a matter of fact, logical result for anyone who is in Christ. And it mirrors the matter of fact statement found in the first verse of this passage. We rejoice because we have rest from worry. We have peace of mind. We have confidence and courage that comes from the rejection of fear and ultimately we have fidelity to love. Perfect love brings peace because perfect love casts out all fear. God is love and because he is now present with us, because he is now with us in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit guards our hearts. He guards our thoughts and our desires and takes them captive and submits them to the love of Jesus Christ. You see, the world around us doesn't comprehend how we can live with such peace, why we have such peace, even in the face of these tragic sufferings, in the face of adversity. Because the peace we have isn't really ours. It comes from God. He gives it to us as one of his many blessings that he lavishes on those that he loves. The world only understands fear. The world only understands fear and is only ruled by fear. Today, you and I stand at a crossroads whether we will submit to fear or submit to love. Think about the implications of that for our country. Our country stands at the crossroads whether we will submit to fear or submit to love. But where the love of God is, the light of his presence breaks into the darkness, destroys the darkness of fear, and turns the world on its head so that it can see the marvelous light of the love of God. It was said of the Christians in Acts 17 that they had turned the world upside down. That is witness, dear ones, to what the love of God does when it breaks into a world ruled by fear, breaks the power of fear, and gives us love instead. Today, I want you to hear these words of Paul's to the Christians in the, in the city of Philippi because they're words from the Holy Spirit to your heart and your mind, to us, the people of God today. You are in Christ. You are a servant of the love of Jesus. 
Fear has no power over you. None. You have literally nothing to fear. Now here's my challenge for this coming week. I want to challenge you to make decisions out of love and not out of fear. If you are confronted with a decision this week, ask yourself this question. Am I going to submit to fear or am I going to submit to the love of Jesus Christ? And then make the love decision. I don't know what that might look, for you this, look like for you this week. You might be prompted by the Holy Spirit to pick up a, a hitchhiker. Now, I'm not telling you what to do, but I am telling you, listen to that prompting and make that decision out of love and not fear. Make that decision out of love and not fear. Live like that for just one week and see what it does. See what it does in your heart. Let's pray.